HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Heritage Foods USA. HeritageFoodsUSA.com You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio. We are bringing the radio to the farmers and the farmers to the radio. Hello, John. Welcome to, ra- welcome to the radio show. Thank you for coming. Hi, Severin. Thanks for having me. Yay. So let's get started right away. Um, John McGee is my new internet pen pal. We're talking together a lot about agrarian politics, and we are both studying similar topics. I'm so delighted to have met you on the internet and now on the phone and soon in person. It's like an escalating mm. excitement. Let's talk a little bit about how you, um, about your career in agriculture. Okay. Um, I taught special ed in St. Louis after school um, and gradually just wanted to, to start moving into a more of a rural setting and do some manual labor. So I took an apprenticeship on a farm in Missouri and uh, did one season there. It was a pretty small farm. Um, They had about eight acres total. They were only using about half of it. And then I came to Pennsylvania where I worked for New Morning Farm for a couple years uh, for the Crawfords um, as an apprentice and had an excellent time there. Jim really runs a great uh, apprenticeship program. And uh, we sold into markets in Washington, D.C. And then from there, I took a job as assistant manager at Atlas Farm, which is up here in the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts. And I was there for four years, um, two as assistant manager and two sort of as, you know, field production manager, mechanic, equipment operator, that sort of thing. And you have a strong um, interest in equipment and small farm mechanics, so that was suiting your interest pretty well. Yeah, I think I gravitated towards machines um, just sort of, you know, out of my male gearhead kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. And... 
um, did pretty well with them. I, I felt like it was a task I could take on, which not a lot of other people were scrambling for. You know, if it were just a matter of sitting on a tractor all day, most folks weren't very excited about that. Um, and as soon as you start riding them, you have to start fixing them and maintaining them and troubleshooting, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, it was great to sort of be on the farms I was at just because they sort of gave me space and guidance and, um, and uh, you know, time to really dig in and learn the equipment, um, learn how to fix it, and so on. And then, of course, being a crazily overambitious human, you published a book called The Small Farm Equipment. And we published it, well, we promoted it on FarmHack. And I know that it's wonderful because a lot of people told me so. But I, of course, I'm not such a mechanical person, so I don't really know how wonderful it is. What was your response when you when you went about this very DIY uh, pedagogical experiment with small farm equipment? The response has been really good. I think uh, a lot of folks have been excited about it. Um, it's pretty exciting to to think how how far the books have have reached in the farmer community. Um, my reason for for going that route was just that you know. These were things that I was having to explain anyway, you know. Uh, folks on the farm also needed guidance on how to troubleshoot uh, small engines and, you know, how to maintain things and um, what particular parts were called and so on. And so it was sort of an ongoing process of me training other people um, and sharing what knowledge had been shared with me, and it seemed to make sense enough of my other farmer friends were also interested in this knowledge that uh, putting it on paper made sense. So, so I did. And let's talk a little bit about this career trajectory because, you know, it's very familiar to do apprenticeship, apprenticeship, and then assistant manager, and then assistant manager, and then comes a moment of inflection when it feels like people kind of get to where they want to make uh, either their own farm happen or get a position that's pretty stable and allows for, um, you know, the biological timeliness of family making. And I wanted to, you know, check in with you about what point in that inflection you were at and and how then this decision to get involved in studying history figures in. That is an excellent question. Um, basically... I think, I think from the beginning, I was a little sort of skeptical of of the trajectory of an apprenticeship. Um, I understood that the idea was that, um, you know, going through an apprenticeship program and working on different farms would put you in a good position to be able to run your own farm. Um, but I didn't really think that it would put you in a good place to own your own farm because, for one thing, you're making nothing. And it costs money to buy land, especially here in the Northeast, um, where there's a lot of pressure from urban populations who have more savings, retirees who are sort of cashing in their urban homes and coming out and, and purchasing land at a, at a higher rate. So I didn't really feel like ownership was terribly realistic. I didn't want to get into a pile of debt that I couldn't 
realistically pay down without sort of enslaving myself to to the farm. And with all due respect to the many folks I worked for, um, they had hard lives, um, especially early on in their in their farm careers. You know, they they themselves were often already with a family, having kids, and sort of finding ways being forced to find ways to make the farm pay for itself and to pay down the debt that they took on in in starting the farm. And that just sort of didn't didn't seem like a a path that I wanted to go down without really being sure that there wasn't another way. And so as I kind of explored the, the topic of farm ownership and and you know started wondering really like why do we want to own farms, you know how old is this idea that, you know, farms are owned by uh, one person or a family, and and that's like the unit of production? How old is this idea, and do we really have any reason to assume that you can have a happy and healthy life, um, or that very many people can have a happy and healthy life um, within that model as we've accepted it and as we've passed it down? And so how do you go about answering that question? Well, it's, you know, it's an ongoing process. Um, you know, my my first inclination, and it's it's still sort of my most enduring interest in, in farming, is just the history of American agriculture. Um, it's, a, it's a topic that's near and dear, and it's, um, it's all around us, you know, sort of like the the vestiges of the past are are, uh, are on all of our farms. Most of the old farm buildings and infrastructure and old equipment all date to to times in the recent past, and sometimes in the distant past. So, sort of understanding, trying to understand the present American situation as a as a result of um, of past situations, been been my main strategy. And that has sort of taken me into, you know, looking at, say, mainly at sort of like cataclysmic events that have most shaped uh, American farming. I call them cataclysmic events. I mean, really, they're sort of like periods of intense political change. So uh, one period that I found really interesting was the New Deal. I think for those of us who who come from an urban background, you know, the especially sort of an urban liberal background, you know, the New Deal carries a certain cachet, like, you know, we have a lot of nostalgia for the time when um, our country's solution to a major depression was to just basically create jobs and to create money and um, sort of expand opportunities um, to, to get by. And unfortunately, the scene in the countryside didn't really didn't really measure up in the same way. It was not so positive of an experience in a lar- in a to a large extent it sort of hastened the centralizing and consolidating and industrializing um, trends that were already in place from the late nineteenth century and in large part sort of shaped the rest of farm policy and sort of who were farm owners and who were not farm owners 
uh, for the rest of the 20th century. Um, so anyway, I mean, en engaging episodes like that has been a big part of of, um, of my search for for clarity. And it's it's funny, I guess, because at this point, the search for understanding of the farm context has kind of, um, I don't know, almost superseded my need to be farming um, or it crowded out my ability to farm. Um, it, it was very hard to have a full-time farm position, especially a full-time management farm position, and um, be devoting a lot of time to asking, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we doing what we're doing in the way that we're doing? And so on. So, um, in many ways, I've sort of uh, thought myself out of a job, um, but it's been exciting because I feel like a lot of a lot of my search now is is kind of outwardly focused, sort of bringing other farmers into the question of of why we do what we do, and with the hope of sort of informing our strategy and and as we look forward to, you know, sort of remaking the countryside, hopefully, then uh, making it a, making it in a way that that doesn't just sort of imprison farmers on their on their small farms. The whole notion of farmers as literate contributors to a new civic awareness and having enough time to participate meaningfully in that kind of discourse in, you know, study group form and watershed basis in consideration of history and ecology and psychogeography and new economics. It's a luxury that um, recurrent precarity doesn't very easily allow. And, it's, you know, if you, if you start looking at that history and you, while well, we have you know, historically low prices of food, historically high prices of land, you know, profoundly undervalued labor. It's a difficult context in which to get philosophical. But you have managed to create a format and a study group and an open source reading list. Will you tell us about it? We have to move briskly through our agenda here together. Sure. Um, so you, you refer to the discussion group. Um, basically, uh, I had formed a sort of, you know, gathered some friends together a couple of years ago to start reading and sort of thinking critically about issues in agriculture. And it was always sort of hard to get people to come. We'd have a potluck and uh, no one had time to make a dish and no one had time to do the reading and so on. It was always a I think you group. might be on mute. Hello? Hello, Severin? Okay, so I'll keep going. Um, so uh, about a year went by with that book group, and uh, we had a great time, but it was kind of feeling like so many more people were interested that, um, you know, we had to find a way to sort of open it up to more people. And and this is a work in progress. You know, this group is, is really sort of its own thing, and, you know, I'm not the leader by any means. Um, but basically we tried to figure out a format that was more open, you know, without barriers to entry. So, um, you know, it's, we're trying to offer free food, you know, food's prepared. You don't need to bring anything. You don't need to do any reading beforehand. If you do, that's great, but it's not required. And 
basically just trying to create a space that um, we can talk about these issues and to sort of bring um, bring these issues in front of a wider audience for critical engagement. And um, I think that space is is really like half the battle. You know, our ability to talk about these issues is is critical if we're ever going to um, sort of advocate for ourselves and represent ourselves and sort of move towards a place where, um, you know, our voices are being heard at the table. And, um, yeah, so. so that's what's going on. We've had a few meetings, and uh, we have another one in a, in a couple days. And it's great. Folks are getting involved. It's mostly farmers and farm apprentices and folks who have been farmers or apprentices, and then just, you know, supporters from the community. Well, it's interesting, you know, we think about um, the Via Campesina movement, which has a very strong uh, and firmly held belief that farmers should represent themselves and that their whole task as an organization is to provide the kind of secretarial and marketing and administrative infrastructure for farmers to self-organize and define for themselves their own goals and engage directly in um, advocacy and policy work and protests and demonstrations and things like that. And whereas here in the United States, we have a much stronger tradition of um, coalition and uh, representation in, uh, well, the, obviously the dominant farm group is the Farm Bureau, um, and the history of the Farm Bureau is not one of total and direct democracy in terms of what which views are represented. And I feel like that, um, I feel like that kind of uh, representation by proxy has major negative impacts on how the stories get told in, in the press and, and how authentic the voices are. And this is called all the more to my attention by this movie that's coming out in a week. Um, it's funded by Monsanto and DuPont and a bunch of other big farm groups who put together a $50 million campaign with a marketing firm called Ketchum out of New York City to kind of rebrand American agriculture. And they're using um, as their spokespeople, kind of like the Marlboro men, young farmers. It's a movie called Farmland. And I've just been, like, really cracking my nut about this, thinking about, you know, how how we've lost such, how we somehow don't really have very, very many uh, authentic agrarian voices in the mainstream. And we're so profoundly outgunned by... Um, you know, herbicide salespeople and, um, you know, beef conglomerates. And well, what would I be would, the kind of cultural format for our retort, even? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so pessimistic. I mean, admittedly, you know, I, I live in sort of an enclave here, a very sort of liberal, small farm-oriented enclave. So it's hard for me to really know what, what, uh, other people's experience of an understanding of American agriculture is. But, uh, you know, just because sort of Monsanto and the rest of agribusiness has sort of a monopoly on um, mainstream media, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't assume that that's the only venue uh, through which, um, you know, farmers, uh, the reality of farmers is really represented. Um, in fact, it's kind of a lame way uh, when you think about it. It might have a certain amount of power in terms of its ability to reach the um, households of middle-class voters, but um, it's, it's not very authentic. So you're proposing a fourth, while well, we talk about media as a third estate, you're proposing a first estate, a fourth estate through the, through the plate or through the relationship, or what's your proposal? Well, well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about sort of agrarian history because um, agrarian movements, um, and I would, I would call the American Farm Bureau and sort of an agrarian movement under the large umbrella of agrarian movements, um, as I would consider the Grange or the Zapatistas or um, any number of other uh, groups like La Via Campesina. One of the interesting things about um, can't hear me, I can't hear. Okay, I'm going to keep talking. Um, one of the interesting things about agrarian movements historically is that they have pretty limited demands um, because they have pretty limited interests. They don't really want to be involved in national politics. That's rescue me from not hearing anything. So, you know, the demands of agrarian groups tends to be tend to be pretty short-sighted. So, you know, like the Zapatistas and in the Mexican Revolution, you know, their primary interest was land. Uh, they weren't interested in, in forming a, a government. They weren't really interested in writing a constitution or anything. You know, they wanted land, and their, their interests were limited to their district, and um, they didn't have alliances with, um, with industrial workers and so on. So, um, you know, it, it's hard to say, like, uh, what exactly the best way to engage in public debate is as an agrarian movement. But I think one important thing is that we need to engage well beyond sort of the limited issues which affect us in the countryside um, and sort of engage fundamental issues in, in our constitution, in our laws, in our relationships with each other, and, um, and really create a movement that in, includes more than just farmers, more than just farm workers, uh, but includes regular people uh, who live in cities and, um, and kind of go from there. Because I think, I think in the end, you know, uh, the government is not going to legislate change. I think we need to sort of create change, and the government might protect that change later <laughs> with, with laws and trining it, but um, I don't think... I don't think we can put our hopes for change on, on other estates. Well, I look forward to continuing this conversation with you in person and, and, and hopefully in another dialogue, another forum. I'm working already on the next Ireland Symposium on the East Coast in, in November and with some incredible thinkers. I hope you'll join for that. Uh, in the meantime, everyone who is thinking these thoughts Along these, thought, along these lines, please do join. We've been posting some of the readings uh, that John has put together on the blog, and we've been tweeting, and we will continue tweeting. There's just incredible lectures available 
um, in the E.F. Schumacher Lecture Series that you can listen to while you plant your seeds in this busy time of year when your available screen time may be low, please just go audio. And uh, I'm going to sign out because I'm in trouble for going over time, but John, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sarah, thanks for including me. Thank you all, everyone. Please send your comments. We'd, we'd love to just hear more from everyone and talk more. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.